Well, good morning, Southwinds. Wasn't it great hearing our kids this week? Well, today is Palm Sunday, and that means that Easter Sunday is just one week away, and I hope you're excited. I hope you're getting ready. I I hope that you are just uh, doing everything you can to make this the very best Easter Sunday of worship and praise and and glory to God that, that we have ever had. Uh, Since we're only one week away, uh, I would like to ask you uh, to do three things, three things uh, this week. First, most importantly, pray every day. Commit yourself to just praying every day. Pray that God's resurrection power would be so evident to everyone who comes that it would change lives. Pray that our our worship, our our singing, our our teaching would be clear and and would just uh, get across so uh, well the, the power of God, the grace of God the beauty and the wisdom of Jesus. And then second, uh, second thing I want to encourage you to do is bring those friends that you're praying for. Don't just pray uh, that they would come, actually invite them, uh, bring them with you so they can experience uh, what it means to worship the resurrected Christ. And then third, third, if possible, and this is especially for our 11 o'clock service, if possible, would you choose to come to the eight o'clock service? One Sunday. I know, I know, greater love hath no man than to come at 8 o'clock on Sunday, but uh, we have extra room at the 8 o'clock service, and if some of us at 9.30 and 11 can choose to come one Sunday at 8 o'clock, that'll provide uh, the space we need uh, for the guests who are going to show up. And so we're, we're expecting uh, over 2,000 people. That's what we've seen the last few years here And we just want to do our very, very best um, as the Southwinds family to welcome them. So I hope that you will take me up on my encouragement to do those those three things. Um, And we're just going to have a great Sunday together. We can trust the Lord for that. Well, this week and next, we are talking about the, the two central events of the Christian faith. And that is the cross and the empty tomb. And today we're talking about the cross. We're looking at the crucifixion. And if you will turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, uh, we're going to read verses 32 to 43 in just a moment. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to focus one at a time on each of the three crosses at Calvary on that day. Well, I have uh, had the opportunity in my life several times on road trips to cross the Continental Divide. How many of you have been across the Continental Divide at some point on one of our interstates? You've been there Uh, The Continental Divide, in case you don't know, is the line that divides the eastern and western slopes uh, of our entire continent. And raindrops that fall at this spot, if they fall even to an inch, an inch to the west or even an inch to the east, are going to end up in very, very different places. If if a raindrop falls an inch to the west of the Continental Divide, it's going to end eventually up in the, the Pacific Ocean. And then those that fall to the east are going to make their way toward the Mississippi River, eventually uh, to the Atlantic Ocean. There's actually a a spot, very, very interesting, up at the Canadian border, very close in Glacier National Park in Montana, that is called Triple Divide Peak. And from that place, rain that falls, uh, the water will flow either to the Pacific or to the Atlantic or to the Arctic. Now, I want you to just kind of think about that if you could. You know, imagine two little raindrop friends just kind of falling casually through the sky, just chatting it up, you know. 
they can literally land one inch apart and end up in oceans on opposite sides of the globe. Well, this passage that we are studying today, it shows us the dividing line of eternity. People may be very close. They may be in very similar situations in life, but if they fall on opposite sides of this line, they are going to end up eternities apart. Luke 23 shows us the story of two men with almost identical lives who fall by their own choice on opposite sides of a line, and they end up in eternally different places. And your life and my life, our lives, will be represented by one of these two men. Let's look at their stories. Beginning in verse 32, Luke writes, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Three crosses on Calvary that day. Three crosses that mark the dividing line of history. And on the cross in the center hangs God's own son. On the other two crosses on each side, two criminals. You know, when the president of the United States makes an important speech, he often includes with him on stage those most important to whatever it is he's announcing. If it's like a military issue, he'll have generals lined up behind him. Or if it's an interest group and he's pushing a policy that he's trying to address needs of people, he'll have people from that interest group there that his new policy is supposed to help. Just think about this. During the defining moment of God's work in human history, God chooses to walk on stage with two random, anonymous criminals because that's what his greatest moment was about. You see, these three crosses are, in a very real sense, a a microcosm of human history that really does tell the whole story of, of the human race. I want you to first of all see Jesus' cross the cross of redemption. Now, if you've been reading through the Gospels and you get to this, you may find yourself kind of wondering, how did Jesus get on this cross in the first place? Because as you're going through most of the Gospels in the first part, everything seems to be going so well. Jesus is loving people. He's teaching people. He's healing people. He's feeding people. Immense crowds follow him, and they're listening to what he has to say. But at this point, the truth is Jesus has has gotten sideways with almost everyone. 
The religious leaders were jealous of him because he threatened their authority. The political leaders, they were wondering if his messianic pretensions would lead to an uprising against imperial Rome. The Jewish people were disappointed that he hadn't declared himself Messiah and defeated the Romans. And his disciples even were confused by him, so much so that one of them betrayed him and the others abandoned him. His crucifixion represents the culmination of the collective failure of the human race, and it is caused by our jealousy, our arrogance, our apathy, our unbelief, and our cowardice. But God, the scriptures tell us, was at work, and he was working out his eternal purpose. See, as soon as sin entered the world, God promised to send a savior to deliver his people from death. We find this on the very first pages of the Bible in the book of Genesis, the third chapter. God tells Adam and Eve that a deliverer is going to come one day. He will crush the serpent of death, but the the serpent would bite the deliverer's heel and put death's poison into him. And from that point on, God gives picture after picture after picture of this. Remember, after God destroys the whole world with a global flood in Noah's day, what does God do next? Well, God, God sends a sign. He sets a gigantic bow, a, a rainbow in the sky, and he sets it as a symbol that he would never destroy the world again in this way. And it's interesting, the author uses a word in Hebrew that means war bow, as in a, a, a bow and an arrow. And notice a rainbow is pointing up into heaven. It is a promise that God himself would absorb the arrow of his judgment rather than firing it down into us. When Abraham, father of the Jewish people, was about to sacrifice his son Isaac at God's command, God leads him to a lamb caught in the bushes so that Isaac can go free. And then later on, the entire sacrificial system of the Jewish people was built on this concept of an innocent substitute taking the place of the guilty. Once every year, every family would bring a perfect unblemished lamb, lay that lamb on the altar, place their hands on that lamb, symbolically transferring their sins to this innocent substitute who would be sacrificed. Centuries later, Isaiah the prophet writes that God will one day send his servant to be the lamb who suffers for the sins of the world, that this lamb would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, that the punishment that brings us peace would be on him, that by his stripes we would be healed. And then as the New Testament era dawns, John the Baptist sees Jesus, and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, the the sins of the entire human race on this cross would be laid on Jesus' head. And what God is telling us, and you can think of it this way, is that Jesus absorbed in his body God's wrath for our sin. Jesus absorbed in his body God's wrath for my sin. Say my sin. Now, absorbing God's wrath is an incredible thing to try to get our minds around. And uh, let me kind of unfold it a little further. And I'll start with a, uh, something that Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote. He describes it this way. He said this, all the prophets foresaw that on the cross, Jesus became the greatest murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that there ever was. Our most merciful father sent his only son into the world and said to him, Jesus, 
You will become Peter the denier. You will become Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor. You will become David, that adulterer. You will become Adam, that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise. In other words, maybe we would say it like this. Jesus became what we chose in our sin. God said to Jesus, Jesus, you will become the husband who has neglected or abused his family. You will become the immoral woman who has destroyed not only her life, but the life of everyone around her. You will become the addict. You will become the teenage girl lying to her parents. You will become the hypocrite living a double life. You will become the proud and the selfish and the lust-filled and the apathetic. On the cross, Jesus became our sin so that from the cross, he could look out at those who had rejected him and failed him, and he could actually pray the words that he prays in verse 34, Father, forgive them. Jesus could extend forgiveness to them because he was being punished for them. Over the years, a lot of people have tried to come up with a lot of analogies just to you know, wrap our minds around what's happening on the cross of redemption, but none of them really capture the whole story. And one of my favorite comes from a true story that took place back in the 1800s, back out on the, the flat plains of the central part of our, our country, the, the prairies, you know, and on the prairies from time to time, lightning strikes and begins these grass fires, and, and these fires can burn over enormous, uh, you know, uh, spaces. People lived out there, but not very many, and they were often very isolated. And, and so one, one day, one of these fires begins, and there's a pioneer family that's out there, and they, they see the fire coming at some point. They realize what's happening, and there's no place to run. There's no place for them to escape. And so the dad gathers the family as the fire is coming quicker and quicker into a circle, and the dad sets the grass by them on fire. He burns as much of the grass as he can around them as the fire is coming closer. And then when it gets to them, they all huddle on the ground as low as they can as this enormous prairie fire burns over them and roars past them. You see, the grass where they had huddled was already burned. And so they weren't touched by the fire. Jesus took the fire into himself so that we could stand on this scorched ground. This might be hard for us to grasp, but maybe think of it this way. Anytime you forgive someone, you absorb the consequences for their action into yourself. You just say if someone lies about you and they destroy your business through their lies, what are your options? You can prosecute them maybe. You can try to destroy their reputation by exposing what they did to you. Maybe you choose to forgive if you forgive, you let the sting of that person's sin stop and stay in you. You refuse to even the score. You absorb the suffering their sin caused. You see, what God did on the cross that day was he took our place. He suffered so we don't have to. I've told you this before. You can explain the gospel in four words. Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. It's why we say that Jesus didn't just die for you. Jesus died instead of you. That's the cross of redemption. Let's look at the next cross. The second cross is the cross of rejection. 
We're going to talk now about these criminals, the two crosses on either side of them. And we're going to start with the criminal who rejected Jesus. Verse 39 says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want you to look at this unnamed thief. I want you to understand that in him we see the very same traits that are part of every person's life who rejects Jesus. First of all, even though he's about to die, even though everyone knew his life was full of violence and full of hate, he refuses to admit any guilt. He takes no responsibility for his sin. All we see in him, secondly, is pride that blames others, anger that he's gotten caught. And then on top of that, do you see it? He demands that God prove himself. If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. Some of us have known people like this. Some of us have been people like this never admitting that we have hurt and we have damaged the people around us, never, never admitting that we ourselves have caused so much of the pain and suffering in our lives. We, we've found ourselves pridefully shaking our fists at heaven, demanding that God prove himself to us, demanding that God do certain things if we're going to believe in him, like is, you know, the God of the universe is accountable to us. <laughs> Let me just say this, that that's who we were, some of us, that's who we were until God opened our eyes. That's who we were until God granted us repentant hearts, until God in his mercy caused faith to flame into fire in our hearts. And we look at this thief, and honestly, what should cause those of us who know Christ to respond, what we should do, we should praise God and thank God for his mercy because the only reason we're not him is the grace of God. And let me just say this too, because there may be some of us who are here and currently you are in this place today. I just want to say to you, don't do what this thief did. He rejects Jesus because his heart remains in rebellion. I want to say to you today, don't go to your death rebelling against God and God's love. See Jesus the Savior, Jesus who absorbed God's wrath for your sin, Jesus who took the punishment that you deserve. And he's not, by the way, on the cross of redemption anymore. He is alive. He was raised to live on Easter Sunday. So you can not do what this first thief did. You can do what the second thief did. You can turn from your sin. You can find freedom and forgiveness. You, you can find life. There's incredible hope in the third cross. Let's call it the cross of repentance. Verse 40, it says, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, before we, we look at this second thief's characteristics, I want you to be clear on something. Do not miss what these two guys have in common. This account is clear. They were equally sinful. These guys were equally bad. In fact, Matthew 27, verse 44, tells us that both of these guys start out cursing Jesus. Both of them, both men were crucified, angry, 
resentful, proud, full of blame, full of hate, blaming God, blaming others for their, their fate. But somehow, in some way, we're not told how one thief begins to understand. Somehow, God supernaturally opens his eyes to see who Jesus was. I mean, this, this man, we, we see three things I just want to point out, three things that are necessary for true conversion, three things that really do mark the dividing line of all eternity in every person's life. The first one is this. We see that this man seeks God for God's sake, not just to get help. You see in verse 40 that the repentant thief doesn't ask to be taken down from the cross. He doesn't ask to be saved from his fate. Now, I, I'm sure that he would have been happy if Jesus had offered that, but all he's concerned about is being right with Jesus. He just says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Somehow this thief realizes that what he needs is not a change of circumstance, but a change in, in who his life is centered on. So instead of asking God for the life he wants, he wants to make God his life. Do you understand the difference between seeking God as the best means to the life you want or seeking to make God your life? There is a huge, an enormous difference between loving God for himself and just finding God a useful means to your end. John Piper says that many people relate to God like a tire iron. Now, tire irons are really useful, especially if you're in trouble, right? But nobody loves a tire iron. Nobody displays a tire iron proudly. Nobody talks to other people, hey, I have an amazing tire iron, right? In fact, you know, you just hide your tire iron in the trunk. You wouldn't want to be caught without it. You want to have one because you might need it one day. The tire iron is useful. You don't love it. It's useful. It's useful for taking care of what you really care about, which is your car. And that's how many of us see God. God is useful for something that we need, like peace in our lives, stable family, you know, taking care of our needs, ultimately going to heaven when we die. But God, for some of us, is not beautiful in and of himself. I'm going to ask you to write down two words in a minute after I ask a question. Here's the question, and I'll give you the words. Which word of these two better describes how you see God? Useful or beautiful? Useful or beautiful? Can you be honest enough with yourself to look at your heart and see what's true for you? See, do you look to God for the life you want or are you wanting to make God your life? Like I've said, there is a huge difference between trying to use God and really loving him. You know, we, we all know the story of the man who is not good to his wife. He mistreats her. He, he neglects her. Maybe he abuses her. And, and at some point, she threatens to leave. And so he, in response, straightens up. He goes to counsel. He says, I'll do whatever you want. And this works for a while, but only until he's out of danger. And he goes back, it seems, eventually to his own old ways because he's never really dealt with his core problem. He doesn't give his wife the place in his heart that she deserves. See, in the same way, true repentance is always a genuine change of heart toward God. It's not merely an attempt to use God or, or to appease God. You know, one of the things that this account always raises, one of the issues and questions it raises is what about 
deathbed conversions? Are they really possible? Can, can someone live an evil life and never do anything good, never think about God at all, and then in the moments before they die, can they repent to God and go to heaven? And the answer to this story is yes, a thousand times yes. And, and if you understand that, you should say, thank God it's possible. This story shows us this, but it has to be true repentance. It can't be God, please, right now, give me my get out of hell free card. It has to be repentance that, that is, has a change of heart, a repentance that may say, God, up until now, I've centered my whole life and everything but you, but that changes from this moment forward, whether I have five minutes left or 50 years. See, the question that this third cross is raising for each one of us is simply this. Have you truly repented? Have you truly repented? Why do you want Jesus? Why are you here? Why do you come to church? Is, is it for a better marriage? Is, do you have some problems in your life and you're hoping that Jesus is going to rescue you from the mess you've made? Is, is it to heal you? Is it to prosper you? Do you just want to go to heaven when you die? Or do you want God for God? Do you want God, even if it means for the time being, that you remain on the cross of bad health, bad marriage, prodigal kids? What if God never gives you the dream job you've always wanted? What if you always have to work and do something that you really don't like doing? Do you just want God for God? Is God enough? See, this story is telling us that you must be more serious about your soul than about your circumstances. Is, have you truly repented before God? Or are you just trying to arrange a deal with God? Let me give you real quickly three signs that may suggest you've never really repented. These are not going to be on the screen, so you can write them down. The first sign is you have areas of compromise before God. There are some of you here who have believed this lie that some churches teach, that you can accept Jesus as Savior and maybe one day receive him as Lord. The Bible never says that. It would sort of be like this. Imagine you get married, and on your first night, you know, the wedding has happened, the reception is finishing up, everything's wrapping up, and, and, and you, you say to your new, your new wife, that was fun, and you grab your keys and you head out the door without her, and she says, where are you going? You say, oh, I'm going to my old girlfriend's house. I'm gonna spend the night with her. Yeah. Is that a marriage? No, it, not at all. People who accept Jesus as Savior but not as Lord, they wanna keep living their own way or doing the same kind of thing. See, if he's not your Lord, he's really not your Savior. The second sign is that you don't have a growing relationship with Jesus. And the way you know this is this. You don't spend daily time with him. You don't, you don't ever read his word. You don't ever pray. I mean, after all, if he is the center of your life, you're going to talk to him constantly as much as you can. You're going to study his word. You know, for some of us, your relationship with Jesus consists of you coming once a week and hearing a pep talk from me. And then you go home and you, you know, kind of do your best to live a fairly moral life. But you never really talk to Jesus beyond that. You don't have any other relationship with him beyond that. It happens for like an hour every week. That's it. What kind of a relationship is this? Well, it's not any more of a relationship than if my marriage to my wife, Dana, consisted of this. 
you know, every week I get together with a friend and we talk about Dana for an hour. And we sing some songs about her during that time we talk about her. But I don't ever talk to her. I don't ever spend any time with her. I mean, that's not really any kind of a marriage, is it? You know, along the same lines, a third sign is just you're not actively involved in his mission. In other words, you see following Jesus as something where you come to this place and you gain some information, you have some experiences, you just receive some things, and you kind of go on with your own life doing your own thing. You never give back, you never serve, you, you never seek to become more like him by ministering to other people. See, all of these things together, just ask us, how can you say he's the center of your life if you're not seeking to live out his will for you, if you're not seeking to do the things that he's told us all to do? Now, I want to be really clear about this. I am not talking about someone who's exploring the faith. I'm not talking about someone who's asking questions. I'm not talking about a new Christ follower who's just kind of learning what all this is about, what it means to follow Christ. I'm not even talking about all of us who, in many occasions, many moments, we just fall short. We don't always do what God has called us to do. What I'm talking about are those of us who have been taught, we know what we should do, We know how we should live, but we are consistently choosing to just live our own life, to just do what we want to do. Maybe if that's where you are, it indicates that you're really trying to use God more than you are to love him. Now back to this repentant thief. What was true about him? Here's the second thing. He admits his guilt before God. He he fully and freely admits his guilt before God. Uh, Tim Keller makes an interesting observation. He says, this second thief says something that is impossible to admit without God's help. This happens in verse 41, where this guy says, we are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. And where this comes from, this insight is this. The Greek word used in the other gospels for these two criminals is a word pronounced lestes, and it it means something more like, not just a a common criminal, but more like insurrectionist. Uh, In our words today, you know, guerrilla fighter or freedom fighter, depending on which side of a conflict, you know, someone's on, you might call them terrorists. And Keller says there is no way that this man would say that he is fairly, justly being put to death by Rome because he believed that he was fighting for justice. So what is he talking about? Well, he's not talking primarily about Rome's punishment of him on the cross. This man is saying to his fellow criminal, we deserve to be abandoned by God. We deserve to be punished for our sins. Before God, we deserve to die. You see, repentance always recognizes that sin is first and foremost against God. Maybe the best way to explain this is to go to the familiar story of King David who committed what may be the most egregious public sin in history. Uh, You know the story, David commits adultery with Bathsheba, then Following that, David murders her husband, Uriah, one of his best friends, one of his his personal private guard, his right-hand man-at-arms to cover it up. David then lies about what he did for an entire year. And when God finally brings him to repentance, David writes what we know as Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, David writes to God, God, against you and you only have I sinned. I mean, how, how could he say that? Think, think of all the people he hurt. 
You know, I think if Uriah was up in heaven looking down and watching David write this, I think Uriah would have at this point kind of gone, um, excuse me, hey, over here. Bathsheba? You know, we, we look at this story in our 21st century context. At the very least, David's the king. She's the subject. Their encounter, at the very least, you know, was this unequal relationship of power and vulnerability, at the very least sexual harassment, at the very most almost a form of rape. How could he say God and God only was the one he had sinned against? And what about the people of the nation that he had betrayed? You see, it's not that David didn't recognize the human element of his sin. It's just that God is so big in his mind that God is the most important person that he has sinned against. Is that how you feel about your sin? See, true repentance is always first vertical and then horizontal. There is a difference always between feeling remorse for the mess sin has made of your life and feeling true repentance toward God about it. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief or sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief or worldly sorrow, that produces death. See, worldly sorrow is, I'm sorry because I got caught. I'm sorry because this has messed my life up. You know, we live in a culture that believes to the core of our being that feelings are reality. How we feel about things determines reality. And out of that, many times, even Christ followers kind of find ourselves thinking that tears equals reality. But they don't. Repentance is not measured by your amount of tears. Repentance is measured by whether your heart toward God has changed. And the sadness that you feel about your sin, is it because, be honest with yourself, is it because what your sin has done to God or because how your sin has messed up your life? When you're repentant, God is always the main person you've sinned against because you see God as creator, you see God as judge, and you realize that God is so good and has filled our lives with his goodness And he's the father that we've spurned and we've pushed out of our lives. See, as long as you are thinking only about the horizontal dimensions of your sin, you're you're never really going to change. The third characteristic we see in this repentant thief's life is he boldly trusts Jesus' grace. Now, when you think about it, I mean, just really pull back from the familiarity of the story and think about it. What this thief is asking is crazy. I mean, he's basically saying, Jesus, I know you're the perfect Lord from heaven, but whenever you get to wherever it is you're going and whenever you receive whatever reward you're going to receive, will you stop and will you remember a guy that you met for like 30 minutes? A guy who had done nothing worthy in his life, a guy who was being executed for murder and treason. It's a crazy request. The only thing crazier is Jesus grants it. Why would he do that? What would Jesus have to gain from granting this guy's request? He's never going to do anything useful for Jesus. He's never going to help the cause. And yet Jesus grants it. Why? Well, because God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world. God didn't want to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him, Jesus And we beheld his glory, the glory of Jesus, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. See, grace is what you show when you really love somebody. And here we see 
the father in Jesus' parable welcoming home his lost son. It's, it's not about what his son will be able to do for him. It's not about how much it's going to cost to get the son back. The father is just so in love with his lost son that all he can see is the joy of having him back. And this thief placed his trust in that kind of grace. I want you to notice in verse 43 what Jesus says in response. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. I think most of us read that statement and we focus on today and paradise. But the real key to that statement you have to see is the phrase, with me. See, the essence of salvation is being with Jesus. It's it's being united with Jesus. Well, why don't you write this down? Christian conversion is not a change of circumstance. In other words, life doesn't suddenly become smoother. It's not even primarily a change of behavior. You don't become a perfect person immediately. It's a change of status, a change of position, because you are now identified with Christ. In Ephesians 2, 6, Paul describes salvation like this. He says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him past tense, you see that, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Have you ever read that verse and thought, that's kind of wrong, and shouldn't it be we will be seated one day, like future tense, because I'm not in heaven right now? No, the truth is, Paul's right. Um, In case that was news for you, anytime you think you're right and Paul's wrong, you're wrong, okay? Because Paul's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So just want to clarify that if you ever wonder. Paul's right here, And, and what he's telling us is true. We are already seated in Christ because salvation is a position change because of what we've been talking about. Jesus takes our sin. We get his position before the Father. So Jesus says to this thief, as of right now, friend, you're with me. You're with me. He says, from this point on, friend, whether living or dying, you will be identified with me. And because of that, today, when you die, and you are about to die, when you die, you will have as much access to paradise as I do. See, when you, when you get this concept that conversion is essentially Jesus giving you his identity as your own, it changes everything. Do you understand? Do you see? And the changes that take place in your life, almost they serve as tests to show whether or not you've really gotten it. Let me give them three things to you, just three, there's a lot more, but three things that show uh, this change has taken place in your life. Number one, you'll be assured of salvation when you see that you are in Christ. You're not gonna be saying anymore, I hope I make it, or I hope I've been good enough. You realize that you are as sure of heaven as Jesus is. You see, those who, who cannot answer the question of whether they know for sure they are saved listen to me, quite often aren't saved. Quite often don't understand salvation. When you say, I'm not really sure, you are, you are revealing that you still think that going to heaven, having eternal life is at least partially based on you. You know, I talk to people sometimes and ask them, do you think you're gonna be in heaven when you die? And they'll say, well, it's kind of 80%. I think the odds are pretty good. You know, I'm trying my best like reading my Bible, I ask for forgiveness all all the time. You still think it's about you. It's about being identified with Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said on the cross? Jesus says, it is finished. The one work 
that needed to be done has been done, and that has been offered to you as a gift if you will receive it. This is going to sound dissonant in some of your minds, but listen to me. You are saved by works, just not your own. You're saved by Jesus' works, and you receive what Jesus has worked for uh, as a gift. Second, you will lose your fear of death. Just try to imagine in that instant how this thief's outlook on life changed. I mean, up until this moment, he was facing the, every, the end of everything, but now crucifixion is simply a gateway into a, a new life. Now, I want to be honest with you. I, I don't want to die. Um, I don't want to leave my wife. I don't want to leave my kids. Uh, my children have not yet produced any, any grandchildren, and you should pray about that too because they need to get on with stuff. I want to meet my grandkids. I don't want to die right now, but I want to tell you, as best I know how, I'm, I'm not afraid. Because I know, I know that by God's grace, Jesus has received me. I haven't done anything to deserve it. But I know that before the, the coroner officially pronounces me dead one day, I will be in the presence of Jesus and he will welcome me into paradise, into his home forever. Then after you get this third, you'll gain a new confidence in life. If you're with Jesus, if you know you're united with him. Uh, now, I know this thief doesn't have long to live, but, but I, I kind of feel like he probably quit caring about what everybody around him was thinking. He, he probably quit caring about the taunts the people on the ground were throwing up at him, the, the judgment, the condemnation the religious leaders were, were throwing his way. It was like, this king, he's for me. I'm with him. And when you embrace your position in Christ, a lot of stuff that bothers you should quit bothering you. Let me give you just one example, criticism. Think of it like this. Say you're a billionaire. Who would like to imagine I'm a billionaire for at least 30 seconds? Anybody want to do that? I'm a billionaire. Let's just say I'm a bill- you're a billionaire. You take a cab. As you take out your money to pay the cabbie for the fare, you start to hand him the $10 bill and the wind catches it and it blows across the street where the traffic is running. It blows into a gutter. It looks like it may have gone down a grate and it's dirty and there's water and all of that. Now, are you going to be distressed about the $10 bill? No. You're, you're a billionaire. You know, um, are you going to feel like your life is ruined because you lost the $10? No. You're a billionaire. Let me ask you this. Are you a Christ follower? Then do you toss and turn at night because someone snubbed you? Because someone looked at you funny? Because someone was mean to you? You're like a billionaire on his knees in a dirty gutter reaching around trying to find a $10 bill. What's the matter with you? I mean, you have the approval of the king of kings. Why are you worried about a $10 compliment or a $10 affirmation? You see, when you know who you are in Christ, whether or not you succeed in this life according to the standards of this world just doesn't matter so much. Whether you have certain possessions doesn't matter so much. Whether people approve you or not doesn't matter so much. Because you're really saying, I have the approval of the king of kings 
And that's all that really matters. The essence of salvation is uniting with Christ where what is his becomes yours. Are you in Christ? Have you repented of your sins? You see, it is here on Calvary with these three crosses that we we find the microcosm of the whole story of the human race. And each of us, every person who's ever lived, will be like one of these two criminals. Each of us will share in one of these two destinations. Some of us may die without ever bowing our knees to Jesus, face the judgment for our sins. And others of us will bow to him now and we will be with him forever in paradise. You know, the Bible says every knee will bow. Every knee. Either bow now or bow in eternity. And I just want to tell you, it's better to bow now. It's better to bow now. Have you truly repented? Have you given your life to Christ? Are you seeking God for who he is in his beauty, in his love, Or have you been mistakenly trying to use God for your own purposes? That's the story of this account. That's the question it raises for each one of us. I want to encourage you to bow your heads and we're going to pray together as we listen to God's voice. As your heads are bowed, as your eyes are closed, I just want to encourage everyone here uh, to hear uh, what we, we have talked about and to let it really sink in, to take it to heart, not to, not to blow it off, not to think, oh, this doesn't apply to me in any way, but just to allow God's Holy Spirit to speak. Will you do that? Will you ask him to tell you what he wants to say to you and just be receptive to what he says? If, if you are here today and you have never uh, truly turned from sin, I want to encourage you to do that. The Bible says, if we repent of our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that means we believe that his death on the cross paid the penalty for our sins, and we stake our eternity on that. If we believe in him, the Bible says, we will be saved. You can pass from death to life right now. You can know the hope of eternal life right now. And all you need to do is honestly tell him, I'm turning from my sin and I'm trusting in Jesus. Father, we we are amazed once again at the, the scope and the beauty of your grace that you would love us so much that you would give your only son and he would absorb your holy wrath for what we did, our sin. Father, we we pray that each person who is here this morning would know you and come to you, would truly turn from sin and receive your salvation. Lord, for those of us who have already met you, May this story just increase and magnify the wonder that we have at your beauty and your goodness and your grace. And may it, may it motivate us to tell others. We, we pray, Father, that others will know you because of what you've done in our lives, that we would be faithful to share 
and tell. Thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. And we thank you for our salvation. And we pray this now in the beautiful and wonderful and amazing name of Jesus. And all God's people together said,